mostly you need to be able to think like a consultant and it's a bit unfair maybe because I was one so I expect that of everyone but I think the the key there is that you know in data science people really it's not only about the technology it's really about the business problem and if you don't formulate the business problem well you're never going to build the right technology so I think right now we are kind of in this well you could say cusp of AI maturity that the maturity of the tools especially that we can use a lot of it is open source of course is really at the point where we can say you know not only about the data science algorithms because that's already been for a while like people know tensorflow and scikit-learn and everybody's worked with those and you know developing very rapidly but not as quickly as maybe two three years ago and now that's really extending to the engineering space so what we're aiming for is always to have think about about five percent savings you know, on your on your energy bill, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, you know, if your energy bill is like uh, you know a million a year, that really starts adding up. Hi, my name is Gareth Thomas from Tangible Computing, and I'm Andrew Rutgers, co-host. This is a podcast about where computing meets the real world, from the fast and the complex, like controlling an engine, to the imaging of a patient, or even scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen. Deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world. This podcast is powered by Version Bay, a consulting company that offers experienced consultants to professionalize your MATLAB, Simulink, and Python projects, minimizing the risk and quantifying the value in migrating to newer software environments. And now, let's find out how software drives the world. Hello, everyone. My name is Gareth Thomas, and today on Tangible Computing, we have Dennis Raumont. So welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm, uh, it's great to be here. I know that you're the head of a data science team here in, in the Netherlands. And before we get into the, that and diving into all the cool things that your company is doing and you and how you're changing the world and making it a better place, could you maybe tell us maybe a fun fact about yourself? Well, I think my close friends would know this, but maybe not most colleagues. So I'm a huge fan of cooking, all kinds of cooking, especially Italian. And I love it so much and especially the appliances and tools that go into cooking. So I have a tendency to collect a lot of them. So my kitchen is stuffed with ravioli cutters and mandoline slicers and skillets, herb grinders, etc. And it's gotten so out of hand, this hobby that, you know, and I live alone. I don't have a partner. So, you know, there's nobody really to call me out on this. It's no longer fitting in my kitchen. So I'm getting to the point that I'm sacrificing bookshelf space for this. Uh, so it's a, it's a little embarrassing, but uh, you know there there could be worse hobbies. Do your do your virtual environments in Python uh, have a similar issue? <laughs> well, actually, you know, when it comes to that, I tend to be very clean. <laughs> <laughs> it you you can just bring in new ones whenever you need. There's no exactly. uh, savoring the uh, the spaghetti maker. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you can regenerate it whenever you want. So you can always just yeah. go ahead and delete the old ones. <laughs> yeah. So. On, on that happy note, Dennis, so you were kind of touching a bit about on your appliances, but that's somewhat related to it, maybe at a very high end or an abstract level, what you do uh, for a living. So you work for a company called SensorFact. Can you maybe tell me a little bit more of what your company is about and what you actually do there? Yeah, sure. So 
SensorTrack is all about appliances, but not kitchen appliances, uh, industrial appliances. So our mission is to eliminate industrial energy waste. There is a huge potential in the industry to reduce environmental footprint, obviously through cleaner production methods, but also just reducing overall waste. So you would not believe how many factories just leave very expensive machines running at night or in the weekends. So there's a huge potential there. And we do this by making energy saving easy, we like to call it, and data driven. The idea is that our customers, they receive a very simple plug and play sensor, something that they can clip over any energy cable that measures the current at 30 second intervals. From that current, we derive power levels, energy consumption, and we display it in an insights app. Customer can go up and go into our app and you know, look how much each machine that they have, how, many, how much each asset is consuming and take action based on that. And on top of that, we provide data-driven advice for which we collect a lot of kind of domain knowledge and sector knowledge and kind of you know, put that into those reports and really make sure that the advice is personalized. Now, what makes us kind of stand out a little bit here is that, you know, we focus on small to medium enterprises rather than your really big customers. So our only requirement is, you know, to make it worth your while, your energy bill has to be above 100,000 euros, which to us sounds like a lot, but actually to, you know, to most factories, that's a fairly low number already. So tell me a little bit more when you say factories, what, what type of factory should I be thinking of? Are you thinking of like car manufacturing factories or are we at a d- different type of factory? So I, I'd say car manufacturing factory is already a very big scale. We usually target the smaller ones. So you can imagine, you know, something like a, a bakery, but we have a lot of customers, for example, in plastic molding. So there's, you know, a million ways that we mold plastic, right? Into all of the kind of everyday items that we use. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of specialization, small companies that produce specific types of plastics. And they don't have, in contrast to, you know, a big car manufacturer, they don't have the uh, money to invest in very big, expensive energy management systems that, you know, usually take a dedicated person to operate it, to take action. So then to make sure I understand correctly, you guys sell this device that you clip on. How big is this? Is this a super expensive thing or is the, the real value in the fact that it can actually collect data and then the information is parsed and then you, you add your domain knowledge on top of it? That's the real value. Yeah, it's the second part. Um, actually, these sensors are available over the counter. You could order them yourself. It's going to be a lot of work to set it up, but you, they are relatively cheap. So we didn't invent the sensor, you know, we didn't do anything fancy there. We just focus on the, on the advice and the analytics. Um, you can even go into, you know, any kind of do-it-yourself, like, you know, Proxis or Hama here in the Netherlands and uh, buy something that looks very similar. So you have a, like a, a little handheld device that you can clip around the cable. So that's the same. When you talk about this domain knowledge and then you kind of add savings, so, so what, what does that look like? Do you look at things like, oh, maybe the price of electricity changes over time and it's better to have certain machines on working on different time zones? Or what, what type of advice do you give that kind of helps companies with savings? Yeah. So there is only so much you can derive when you only look at how much energy a machine consumes. So you need to know a lot of stuff about it usually. And in our process, we have, you know, at least two interviews, which in each new customer, where we try and get details on, you know, what kind of devices do you have? What kind of machinery? What, you know, what's the context in the factory floor? Are they connected to each other on a kind of a, on a line, like on a production line? 
are different air compressors. Those are devices that compress air so that it can be used anywhere in the factory, right? So for, for example, to hammer nails into things. So, you know, that's the kind of context that we collect by talking to the customer. And that gives us a very good idea about what types of savings are going to be relevant for them, right? So if you have several machines of the same type, maybe you can, you know, turn one of them off when the other two are doing the work, right? Save that way. So these are kind of the, the things you can think about. And just to be clear, so you, you run the, the data science part department of, of SensorFact. Mm -hmm. So what is actually the type of data that you're getting? So you, you have the two, the interviews, you put it into context. Mm -hmm. Just for my understanding, what, what type of things are you actually receiving and is your team uh, looking at and how do they take that and make it into something insightful and useful for companies? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, in the basis of it, what we do is we collect energy consumption measurements. So it's these current uh, sensors that I mentioned before, that's kind of be that's like 90% of what we do so far. But you can think about other stuff like uh, external factors such as weather data, which we're collecting to provide context, you know, weather can impact your HVAC systems, your air conditioning a lot. It, it can you know impact how much your ovens will need, ovens that you use to dry stuff or to harden stuff. But also we're really looking into other types of energy. So right now our focus is in mostly electricity, but we also you know, provide uh, gas sensors. So more and more customers are installing gas sensors, water sensors, even looking into you know, pressure sensors, uh, vibration sensors, all that kind of stuff, yeah. Are your uh, current sensors also able to measure the reactive or the blind power? No, so it's a, it's a fairly simple measurement system and we measure three phase current and using you know some physics calculation. I'm not a physics uh, major originally. Um, uh, Hall effect sensor is the uh, the standard way, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I guess you two are electric electrical engineers, right? Correct. So so that hence, hence, <laughs> so, hence the question of the electrical yeah, part. But I'm we'll, getting into muddy waters here. <laughs> I, I feel. <laughs> but but we'll, we'll go into more into your domain. So I'm assuming you know when you run a team of data scientists, right? And, you know, this is a new field which is emerging and a lot of companies are trying to do it. Can you maybe tell us a little bit of some of the skills that you might be looking for in a team to kind of make this a reality? And coupled to that, I guess, is how important is the specific domain knowledge? So I'm assuming not many of your team members have been brought up through these large factories or even seen one in real life. And, and how does that shape your team? Yeah, so so maybe I can I can maybe start with myself a little bit in the sense that you know what's the the route that I took to get here because it's it's informative also I think in in, in how we look for for things because I have a bit of an odd way of getting here. So I'm not originally you know an electrical engineer or, or or not even a data scientist. I didn't study it because it wasn't really available. So I did political science and math, and I wanted to do something with you know to solve the climate change problem. I was very passionate about that, but felt that the policy angle wasn't very um wasn't very effective there it was slow moving and it's usually about inventions and technologies that other people kind of have created so you know when data science got to the hype of it, the, the height of its hype cycle i decided to jump in there and i joined an energy company that was really concerned about you know energy savings in the netherlands called Ineco, and worked a lot on kind of estimating energy savings for smart thermostats and uh, smart meters in the household so that's kind of that was my interest in this field. So there has to be some, you know, some passion that you have about the energy sector. 
And luckily, we're also in the middle of the energy transition. So there's a lot of people moving into this. And, and it's a very interesting space, very dynamic. A lot of stuff is happening. And then again, you know, I didn't uh, move from there to here. I also worked in consulting for a number of years because I wanted to see a lot of different companies. So when I, you know, look at different candidates right now, I try to find this kind of blend of, you know, you have to be passionate about reducing environmental footprints. You have to have some affinity with, you know, the energy sector, but mostly you need to be able to think like a consultant. And it's a bit unfair maybe because I was one, so I expect that of everyone. But I think the, the key there is that, you know, in, in, in data science, people really, it's not only about the technology. It's really about the business problem. And if you don't formulate the business problem well, you're never going to build the right technology. So that's why my conversations, you know, with candidates always go with, start out with, you know, what was the problem you were trying to solve? Why was it important? You know, for who are you building it? And, and hardly any kind of technical questions. Right. Which kind of then then makes a nice transition to, you know, a, uh, when you say what problem you're solving. So you kind of articulated that nicely at the beginning of this call, but you didn't quite allude to, for example, how big a savings you guys are kind of talking about, right? So the, mm -hmm. the business proposition, I think it's clear that you know you measured you measure energy and you give recommendations, you put in AI models on that. But when you say savings, are we talking like you know 10% saving on that 100k bill, or are we talking 1%? What 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 type of values are we talking about here yeah so this really depends on you know of course the size of your electricity bill so what we're aiming for is always to have you know, think about about five percent savings you know on your on your energy bill and it doesn't sound like a lot but actually you know if your energy bill is like uh, you know a million a year that really starts adding up and on average our kind of uh, advice savings are three times higher than what a customer pays every year Right. So there's a there's a real good business case to invest in these energy savings, especially at scale. But of course, the customer also needs to kind of cooperate. They have to also, you know, they have to want to take the advice <laughs> right. and take action. Yeah. And, and, and do you find that a difficult thing in the sense that I'm assuming many larger factories, they've been running for a while, right? So it's not that mm -hmm. things are super critical. You're kind of at the stage of where you're optimizing and just trying to reduce their costs. Is that something that is an easy conversation or is it a bit like, yeah, we know we could, but it's not worth our hassle? Is that the, the tough part of your negotiation or even just simply translating AI can help you? Is that a scary proposition for non-technical people? Uh, yeah, you know, the first thing is that, you know, one of the main reason that I wanted to join this company is because I really like the context of working on energy savings, business to business. Um, I'd worked a lot on consumer energy savings and there, you know, there's lots of problems around behavior change, right? Because at home, we're just doing, the we're just doing what feels comfortable, right? We don't want to, the hassle of continuously having to think about turning the thermostat down or turning the lights off when we go to bed. So there it's really about you know behavior change and um you know keeping people honest to their uh, to their intentions then you know in this in these big factories when it's suddenly about money and about money you can save then suddenly it becomes more important so it can be a matter of changing a protocol a work protocol to make sure that the machine is switched off it can be a matter of maybe even automating some stuff right maybe there are you know some machines that you can turn off automatically so the kind of the barrier from insight to, to action is a bit smaller. That said, so one of the big things that we're 
So we can we can go, maybe go into some of the algorithms that we're we're working on right now, like short term uh, uh, in a bit as well, if you're interested. But long term, what we're thinking is, you know, we give advice, but we need our customers to follow the advice because that's eventually what we try to offer. Right? They're going to judge us by how much you know they actually save, how much we actually the value that we deliver. So in that sense, we we're looking at companies like Google and Facebook who've been very successful in the advertising space kind of changing people's behavior by giving the right triggers, right? Showing the right ad at the right time, recommending the right product at the right time. And that's something that you can solve with AI as well. So we have all these, you know, fancy insights and advice maybe, but maybe we can optimize exactly when we should show this and, you know, what's the best timing, what's the best frequency, what's the best message to, to deliver to someone who's, you know, on the factory floor, only looking at his email in the morning and then, you know, having his phone on the, on, on vibrate the whole day. Uh, these kinds of things and you need to take into account. Right. So it's kind of interesting you're calling out that even though your core business uh, is on a particular domain of optimizing energy, that just because there's an AI group in a company, it doesn't mean that it's exclusively for that. And it's actually quite a common thing that there are other departments, groups that can leverage that know-how a little bit more for other business areas. Yeah. But um, but it's interesting you said that a bit of the algorithm. So I'd like to dive a little bit deeper on that. So can you maybe share a bit of insights on what algorithms and how you go about this optimization? Sure, yeah. So one very interesting challenge that, that I mentioned before is, you know, the, the problem in AI is usually not technology, right? There's some other problem that's going on. AI, I like to define it as very broadly as anything that... Uh, is normally done by humans that now can be automated by the computer. Obviously, the printing press is not AI, although it is something that we used to do uh, to print books. But it's always kind of the next thing we're wondering that computers could do. And it's usually because we see some human task that's kind of menial or that's kind of, it, it requires some intelligence, but we feel like, you know, if we're smart enough about it, we could automate that. Uh, so one thing that... Uh, that we really have, we have this team of consultants, as I said, that talks to customers very, you know, in a very detailed manner to collect the information. And we could use those consultants to, uh, to collect labels, basically, to be able to label our data. Uh, and the pre presence of high quality labels is often, you know, for big companies is a big problem because they have so much data, they don't have the people to label it. You can imagine it, you know, classifying a cat or a dog, you can put the pixels into the image, but if you don't tell the model that it's a cat or a dog, it will never be able to distinguish cats from dogs. I um, mean, our consultants, they can, you know, they can look at a graph and they can just see what's going on because they have that experience. And then, you know, if they can see what's going on afterwards, they can check with the customer if that's actually what's going on. So, you know, take the example of, uh, of standby power. I mentioned that briefly. Your machine is on in the weekend. And you can see that because it's kind of flatlining at relatively high consumption, right? There's nothing being produced. There's no little plastic uh, cups uh, coming out of the machine. It's just flatlining. Uh, that's fairly easy to detect. And then if we can have a consultant look at that label and say, like, okay, is it really flatlining? Is it really a standby behavior? Is this expected or is it normal or should it do this in the weekend? And that feedback that we collect can then be fed back into the model. And this is a form of you know, what's called active learning, where you kind of produce these examples you have the by the AI, and then you have a human look at it, and then it kind of goes back into the model to improve it uh, continuously. And so you don't really have a really artificial intelligence, it's more enhanced intelligence 
and you 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 never really take the human out of the loop. You just kind of make sure that they need to intervene less in the long term. So, so could you maybe tell me a little bit of some of the biggest challenges that you face? So in most organizations, when they're trying to get started with AI and data science, they kind of picture it as a, an IT project uh, where you start with a list of requirements uh, and you design what it should look like at the end, you build it and then it's done basically, right? You deliver it to your customer. The problem with AI and data science is that it's fundamentally a research and development effort. So you're not going to know beforehand what's going to come out. So there is this very important need to experiment, to test hypotheses. And this is not something that's naturally in everybody's mind when they look at it because they treat it as you know another IT team. And luckily at this company, there's a lot of freedom to kind of develop that kind of experimental culture and to really refine experiments, focus on formulating the right hypotheses rather than what needs to be built and how it needs to be built. Um, but this is something you know that's always going to be a problem. It's always going to be difficult because you're always going to have unrealistic expectations of what the AI can deliver, what patterns are in the data. So you need to, you know, be very specific about what is success for you. How do you time box it? How much time will, will you give yourself to, to test that hypothesis? Um, so that's that's an ongoing challenge everywhere, uh, and that's the one I think that will never be solved entirely. I can tell your consulting experience kicking in with the way that you articulated that. <laughs> <laughs> What are some of the uh, tools that you're using to to build your your data data analysis and and your I, I guess data pipeline? Because we, we we've talked a lot about the business case, which is really interesting, but uh, we also like to cover a little bit of the technical and uh, yeah, what are the tool sets or languages that you're working with? Mm -hmm. So for a hundred percent, I would say of data science analysis these days is done in Python. So there was a time. When, back when I started, it, a lot of people were doing still R, and I don't want to, I don't want to speak any bad of it, but it's it's definitely declining in popularity, also because Python is much more integratable into you know a bigger software ecosystem. So that's really what we use to do our analysis and to automate our analysis, and around that, so we work in the cloud. That's a benefit of being a, a startup or a scale up is that you can really just work with the newest tooling yourself. So we use managed services wherever we can. So there's this concept of serverless computation. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. So the idea is, you know, I just want to run this bit of Python code. I don't want to worry about all the architecture behind it, which machine is running where in the world. I just want to run, you know, I want to put this data into it. I want it to perform this computation. I want to get this result. And this is something really powerful. And, and we work uh, with Amazon Web Services, so there you have AWS Lambda to do this with. And on a big of a, you know, uh, more flexible scale, you can do that also with containers. Like if you containerize your applications, for example, with Docker, you can also just ask the clouds to run your Docker container somewhere, for example, with AWS Fargate. So it's really, you know, coming from a very corporate atmosphere where it's always a very difficult cumbersome process to choose such architectures, to choose such tooling, and to have to kind of stick with it. It's also kind of liberating to just be able to say, you know, okay, so what's this newest thing that they designed? And, and okay, so what are people saying about it? Should I try it out? Okay, we tried it out. It's, it, it really fits. We're going to keep using it. 
I, I thought they were mostly rebranding Fargate towards uh, Elastic Compute Service or uh, ECS so that every time yes. I search for it, it seems to come up with ECS as opposed yes. to Fargate. I, I've, I haven't really figured out what the difference between the two is, to be honest. <laughs> I, I thought it was just a new brand name, but I'm, I'm not the expert. Yeah, I think ECS is kind of the, 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 the system now, I should, they would call it. But you can still, inside that system, you can still work with Fargate. And I think now as there's also Fargate spot instances, which are cheaper. Um, but yeah, I, that's, that's just that they're able to uh, trigger the execution at a time that they, they yeah. decide is appropriate. Actually, a great way to save energy is you just wait for cheap energy prices or low utilization to, uh, to, to schedule uh, non-priority loads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although I, ha I would have to say, you know, there, it's still interesting to me to see for what use cases would be specifically uh, into, applicable. Um, because for us, if we run a big compute cluster to do like a massive computation for all our customers, if the scheduler some, uh, somehow suddenly uh, drops out uh, for this uh, cluster, then uh, we have a big problem. The whole thing needs to be started. So, uh, this is super interesting, and I know that, for example, at Databricks, they this is kind of in the the core of their um, of their uh, compute uh, service. Basically, you can also work with uh, spot instances. Uh, they've done a lot of backend work to make sure that that goes smoothly, that no data is lost, obviously. Um, and there is still kind of a yeah. With, if you're using a lot of these open source of these uh, cloud providers, is that they have this tooling and they have a lot of the stuff that you can do to make it flexible is not at the level as, for example, Databricks, which just takes care of everything for you. So you would still have to build this fault tolerance into your applications. Yeah. Yeah, it's often a lot of the challenge in in building these uh, systems is not necessarily getting it to to run the first time. It's getting it to run consistently with whatever problems might happen, or a user puts in a stupid entry, or the cloud exactly. provider uh, you know shuts down something because it's on a very cheap price point, something like that. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What are the typical sizes of data that you're working with uh, when you do analysis? Are you dealing with you know millions of points or billions of points and Sort of, yeah. I'm trying to trying to get a, a picture for how big the array is. That's a really good question, and uh, just just a rough uh, calculation on that based on uh, all the assets we have, knowing that we have 24 hours of data, uh, 60 uh, minutes per hour, and two measurements per minute. It's about 43 million data points a day. So it's not a huge uh, amount. Uh, so it's uh, compared to some of the really big use cases like Google, Facebook, Ad, or even any kind of major corporates, it's not huge, uh, but it's definitely big enough to not fit on your laptop anymore. And we perform analysis on two levels. So we do it distributed over all of our customers for anything that we want to run continuously, any analytics that we want to have always on, like uh, detecting standby behavior or you know being able to alert on certain uh, uh, triggers versus really customized analyses that only have to be uh, calculated when we're compiling a report or when the customer has requested it. And for those applications, you know, just a Lambda function or a serverless function is enough, basically. Yeah. How do you deal with the uh, data privacy? Because on the one hand, I presume the, the clients in many cases may uh, you know, request that you don't share the data or there'll be some level that you, you don't share the data. And then you're talking about all of the data aggregated all together. Uh, now, clearly, there's a level of kind of an automization there. How do you, how do you manage that tension between as a company uh, wanting to 
look at as much data as possible to run your analysis. And then on the other hand, having clients who, who may see some of that as their competitive advantage and wanting to keep uh, some of that uh, confidential. Yeah, so, so to start with, our main proposition is to measure energy consumption and to use that to provide, to provide data-driven advice. So just to be able to deliver our servers, obviously we need to be able to analyze customers' data. And we also need to analyze a lot of customers' data at the same time to learn from that. Now there's two kind of aspects to privacy, or maybe you should call it maybe data governance more in general. One of them is, of course, the security aspect and the competitiveness aspect. So you shouldn't, you know, you should try not to, uh, you should try and keep your data safe, make sure there's no leaks, you know, and make sure that it doesn't end up on the street uh, and their competitors can see it. That's very obvious. On That's very important for us. We really kind of, uh, kind of hammer that down. And the other one is uh, more GDPR related. So are we handling personal data effectively? That's obviously also very important for us, but the energy consumption measured from an individual machine does not constitute personal data, right? So there's, we don't, we don't have to ask consent from the machine, but we have to make sure that, you know, our contact persons aren't available for everyone to see in the company. And they're only used when we need to send emails or plan meetings and stuff like that. So what are, what are some of the, the specific value adds that you get from adding um, machine learning or adding algorithms to it? Because it sounds like, you know, you have you put some sensors on, you get consultants to uh, look at the data. The consultants are able to recognize straightforward things like it's been on standby because they they've experienced they have some experience. They've looked at a few different factories. But then you're able to do this better than other people because you have uh, software and AI tools that do this. So what are some of the insights that your AI tools can help provide your consultants with an edge? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, right? And I'll, actually, there's a, there's a huge growth now in labeling companies. And so, so they've recognized that there's a demand in this space. So they kind of come up with these services like, okay, we're going to, you know, you send us pictures, we're going to tell you what's in the picture, we're going to help you with all of your labeling tasks. But they usually start out just uh, following this Mechanical Turk principle. Have you ever heard of Mechanical Turk? So, so this is the Amazon service where you can uh, specify a task and then it gets farmed out to humans, uh, to, yeah. to people even to uh, to go and do it. And they all do these little tasks, for instance, uh, describe what's in the image and you can uh, quickly and cheaply get uh, many, um, many things labeled, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of companies will actually start out with that because at that moment, uh, because they don't have the AI working yet, or it's actually very expensive to develop it. It's cheaper just, just to have humans do it. And uh, there's a f very funny story behind it, by the way, why it's called Mechanical Turk. I, I, I really urge you to, to look it up, to Google it. But the main point being that for us also, you know, the last several years, you know, Sensorfact has been around for several years. This is how it's been done, right? It's been done a lot manually and all this analysis can be done manually and consultants can do that actually pretty well. The problem is, however, that consultants in the end, you know, you cannot scale up to tens of thousands of consultants, right? So if we, we want to reach really a lot of customers as a scale up, that's no longer feasible. And also, you know, right now we compile the savings report for our customer, but then after that, you know, we, can go back to them, we can set alerts for them, we can set repeated reports for them, but there's no longer this kind of really personal attention continuously because that's just not feasible, you know, with the kind of service level that we that we have. 
So that's when the AI comes in, right? So you can think of it that the consultant helps you configure the AI, make sure that the AI understands what's going on. And from that moment on, the AI can become kind of your personal energy management coach, you know, keeping you to your, to your promises in the long term. Right. So just to be clear, um, probably people think that this is a very quick operation, right? So I can imagine you might say, oh, I'll buy a gazillion sensors. I plug them in everywhere. Then from one day to another, I get the data coming in. And then it's a question of two days later, I, I now have AI. And I'm assuming from the way you're describing it, that is an unrealistic scenario, that it probably takes a lot longer before the models that you're training and, and identifying and labeling with that domain knowledge, it mm -hmm. takes a lot longer before that system actually yields the results. Yeah. So, so that's also a very interesting question. And it's a big hypothesis we have. So how are we ever going to reach that point where, you know, we get a new customer, just send them the sensors and, you know, a month later, because usually we need at least a month of data, you know, ideally three months, you know, we know everything that we need to know and we can tell them what's going on. There's probably always going to be someone that needs to call up and say, hey, so we think this is what's going on. What's your feedback? Or, you know, what, what does your factory look like? Because we cannot see everything from the sensors. But our big hypothesis is that some of the stuff that now we have to kind of validate with a lot of customers, if we re reach a certain critical mass, we have seen enough factories from the inside our AI system has seen enough factories from the inside to better reason about new customers. So a new plastic factory is going to come in. That's you know our biggest customer group, plastic molding. I was like, well, I've seen these plastic molding machines a gazillion times. I know that this one is in standby, right? So we no longer need to validate that. We can just start sending alerts. We can kind of start um, coaching the customer without you know needing to validate that with a consultant. Playing devil's advocate here, you could deliver that insight before you ever even measured anything that you say, oh, you're using a so-and-so 3900 molding machine. And, uh, you know, typically we have a checklist of typically customers leave them on on the weekend and you shouldn't leave them on on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. just you tell me you've got this 3900 machine. I can I can tell you that and get that insight. So that's on the one side. On the other side, it seems like you need to build up quite a large database in order to be able to get sort of insights for the, frankly, enormous diversity of different different machines that are in industrial sites. And yes. that, that's also something, having worked in a factory, I found was really very different from you're used to the consumer space where whatever you're buying is probably sold in, in thousands or tens of thousands or millions. Lots of other people have the same thing. Whereas in factories, there's all kinds of, you know, the configuration of everything put together is probably bespoke. And then even the machines, there are runs of, oh, we made 50 of those, or they're, they're highly specialized uh, components. Yeah, so, so there's two questions there, right? So to your first question, the short answer is yes, of course, there are certain general insights that you can provide that are probably hold true on average. This, of course, the big promise of AI is that you can personalize this kind of advice because, you know, a, a factory that has 20 of these machines, well, we can tell them that, you know, usually they leave them on the weekends, but it's going to be much more valuable to tell them which machine and which weekend, right? And that's not something that we can provide before actually measuring the data. But to your second question, so this is something we're looking into right now, for example, is it's a fact of life that we will be getting different types of industries all the time. So we have this very long tail of industries where we know maybe one or two customers. It's going to be very hard to classify you know, what's happening there. It's going to be very hard to see exactly what's happening. So there's always going to be this 
this space where we need to explore and we still need the consultants to really go in and see what's going on there. But then we have this big chunk, our majority, where we have enough kind of evidence gathered and we need to, 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 to run that automatically. And that's the kind of be the bulk of our of our customer base, basically. And we need to kind of keep it expanding that. But you're right in saying that there's something always so bespoke and unique about these situations that, especially if you encounter a new one, it's going to be, it's not going to be possible to detect that automatically with AI. Yeah. And, and I guess I, the, I remember an extreme uh, case of that was, I think there was a, a, a virus that was developed several years ago that uh, infected, I believe it was a Siemens brand of industrial controller. And then it was able to figure out based on the settings and the devices connected to this particular industrial controller, that this would be an Iranian or a, a uranium enrichment plant in Iran and would then initiate the, the payload of the virus to, to damage this. And so I believe this is Stuxnet. And, and so that, that kind of goes to how highly specialized all of these, the, these types of things are. Yeah, yeah, and it's fascinating. And I think that's so. I think right now we are kind of in this, well, you could say cusp of AI uh, a maturity. Uh, that the maturity of the tools, especially that we can use, a lot of it is open source, of course, is, is, is really at the point where we can say, you know, not only about the data science algorithms, because that's already been for a while, like people know TensorFlow and scikit-learn, and everybody's worked with those, and that's. Uh, there's, it's still, you know, developing very rapidly, but not as quickly maybe as maybe two, three years ago. And now that's really extending to the engineering space. So how can we make these models, you know, scalable and, and run in production, as they say, and, you know, be uh, very robust in providing predictions in, in real life situations. And those two things are really coming together and becoming so mature that you see, you know, a lot of specialized companies jumping into this space because now suddenly for SensorFact, you know, they can hire someone who just has some experience in that. And then, you know, we can work maybe with consultants or we can, you know, hire some meteors and, and we can kind of build all this, start building that stuff ourselves. We don't need, you know, to hire 20 people immediately and, and, and work on this for, for 10 years. So that's why you can really see this kind of uh, specialization and fragmentation going on. I think it's a good thing. I think it also means that, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to go, we're going to look back and say, like, okay, any companies who were successful in integrating this into their DNA right now, those are the, the ones that are going to be successful. Right, because I can also imagine that it's not a static thing, right? So you set up a factory, and I guess that's a plan for production, but these things also change over time, right? So it's not a, the way you set it up on day one remains forever. So I, I can understand the value in having a continuous coaching mechanism there to catch out new different things, right? Maybe yeah. production line or a material has to change because of a supplier or something, and that all of a sudden changes slightly the order, and then it's a bit of an optimization problem that has to kick in, and, and then you can look at that data, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. So one uh, one one thing that our customers tend to do is they think, oh well, you know, I got my advice on these sensors, and I. Monitor for monitor them for a while. It's like what you can do if you have a smart plug at home. You'll you know you'll plug your TV into it, and you'll just be able to see how much it uses on standby. And then you think, okay, well that's that's uh, good. I can uh, I better turn it off. It saves me like a euro every year. Uh, and then you put it on something else, right? You put it on your washing machine, and you start you know putting it around the house on different appliances. And then somewhere in some basement, a data scientist is going crazy, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> no idea what's going on there, right? There's five different appliances in there, no way to tell. So 
you know, we need to also know when this happens and we can try and detect it, of course, or we can ask the customers. That's definitely, you know, these kinds of changes can happen and they're, uh, yeah, they can be, they can be a pain. <laughs> And, and I'm, I'm curious also, so you kind of, the way you've articulated so far is it's kind of like the, the factory's up and running and then you sell your sensors and you go and you talk, but do you get ahead of the game of when you're setting up new factories? So there's all these system integrators that they have their trade-offs, they do their maths and figuring which is the right robotics, which are the right machinery to put in. Do you kind of envision also working with them to kind of get ahead of it? Uh, in the sense that maybe historically they've always made certain decisions that you get ahead of the game and say, you keep saying this, but actually you should be recommending this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so your question is also really getting closer to the manufacturing side and, and, and to see if, if, you know, if we could integrate more of this, this censoring in, into machines as they're being built. Yeah. 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 So this is a, it's a big question. So obviously we're not the only company working in this space. Some other companies focus more on just a pure data platform. Some companies focus on having the full package, like all kinds of sensors, expensive system, as I explained before. Some companies only focus on the consultancy and you provide them just with your data, any data that you have. And there are also companies who really focus on pr producing sensors that can be integrated into machines. And there is definitely you know, going to be you know, a movement where more and more new appliances are going to be, or appliances assets are going to be built with energy sensors integrated. That's definitely true. However, you know, we are trying to kind of capture this space and part of the market where a lot of these small, medium enterprises that don't really invest that much into the newest equipment, they are kind of, we can collect our data, we can collect a kind of, you know, proprietary database of, or AI kind of learnings that will kind of extend we will we'll have this time to kind of catch our learnings from it and to gain all this domain knowledge and have a system that works robustly that eventually, if we're no longer using this hardware ourselves, but we can get all the data from other places, from you know, our customer's own sensors or any other sensors they want to install, we can just integrate that into our into our platform. But it's a, it's a you know it's a definite trend. Yeah, we we have a few customers that say, oh, actually this machine it already measures my energy consumption, so I don't need to put it on this machine. Is there a is there a market also for uh, measuring energy consumption for corporate uh, sustainability goals? For instance, if I if I do production runs for several different customers, then each customer may want to know how much CO two their order has generated for their reporting. And I'm guessing if you have the the sensors in place, that could be a direction. But I don't know if that's one. I, I'm just thinking about this now. I don't know if this is one that you guys have thought about. No, this is yeah, that's a very good question. We haven't really looked at it specifically from the corporate social responsibility perspective. Also a little bit because that's, uh, so we have some bigger customers, some corporates, uh, it's not our main focus. For them, this tends to be a priority. For really smaller uh, companies, they tend to think like either I can save money or I'll do my part to kind of save the environment. But compliance is a very big thing. So there's a lot of, you know, EU legislation coming up that's going to be forcing industry to make like serious changes here, investments here. So that's something that we obviously are looking into how we can accommodate any kind of certifications that are going to come out, any standards that are coming out. Can we contribute to those standards? Because that's in our interest and of course the customer's interest to, uh, to, to be able to report on those if, you know, in case they're going to be energy audits saying like, okay, how much have you tried to save energy this year? Have you met your targets? 
Right. So I uh, so I think it's a very inspiring story that you you have here, Dennis, and and I very much like. Uh, your your passion that it's driven more from not only the maths behind it but to, to make the world a better place and and you know saving energy in these large factories is, has a big impact versus me at home saving my one euro with my TV where actually I, I can afford it so I don't think twice about that right I I, I do have to see that's also a very valid problem and it's great that people are working on that as well right so there's great innovations yeah, there. The, the, the the multiplier there gets really big so Gareth alone exactly. doing it uh, doesn't doesn't add very much. This is true, but if uh, you know 18 million, 17 million people in the Netherlands all do that, then it really does add up, uh, yeah. and then it's interesting. Yeah, if you have like a really good thermostat that can you know that really turns off when it needs to turn off, you never forget, and everybody installs something like that. Yeah, that's that's a huge impact. Right. So, but it, but it is a, an inspiring thing that probably many people don't think about it because. Uh, when you start off this journey, you didn't think about ending up working and seeing factories, right? No. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's kind of interesting to see that um, when you say saving energy, is it only around the, the saving the energy or do you really think it of as um, I'm making the world a better place? I'm kind of curious a bit of the DNA that kind of is driving you as an individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely a good question. So, um I think the, the the nice thing about it that it's obviously a bit of both, right? So there's this, we're a scale-up, we're very commercial, we want to grow fast, we want to capture the market, um, because we believe that only with that scale we can have the real impact to, to, to kind of uh, uh, save the environment, if you want to call it that. So we need to be very commercial about this. We need to have a good proposition and, and people need to join us for all sorts of reasons, not just to save the environment, because then we're probably not going to be as big as we'd like. But in the end, you know, it's really about the impact we want to have on reducing CO2 emissions. Like stats like, uh, you know, we can, the amount of savings that we, that we generate amounts to X thousands of, of households, you know, in the Netherlands. That's, that's a very pow powerful thing to be able to, to say, yeah. And, and where did this actually come from? So you kind of gave a bit of a your know, superhero origin story, saying that at an early age you were kind of interested in this. But I'm kind of curious, how early did this kind of trigger in? Was this when you're like 10 years old that you, your family member kind of told you about this? Or was this just later in life when you went to university and said, hey, this is wrong, I don't like this? Do, do you remember well, how this started? Well, I'd say superhero is maybe a bit too much of a compliment. I'd say super nerd. That's, <laughs> let's, let's keep it at that. Um, so I've always been a bit of a nerd myself. Uh, I'd like to say social nerd. That also makes me stand out a little bit in the, uh, in the IT crowd, generally speaking. But for me, I've always had this, this uh, idea that if you wanted to have a positive impact, that you need to know what you're talking about. So I, I really can't deal with you know not having the complete picture and not knowing all the technical details and i think i just followed that kind of urge <laughs> very far and ended up where i was right now uh, so you know i wanted to understand technology and then i want you know i wanted to understand how the environment works you know then i wanted to do physics mathematics and then you know kept 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 on going and now i'm here in data science <laughs> So it seems you're very passionate about this, but when you wake up in the morning, what is the thing that puts the biggest smile on your face? Yeah, good question. So the, the most important thing, as I said a, a little while ago, is, is this, this 
importance of the thinking about the business side of things whenever you're designing your approach in machine learning. And the thing that makes me most enthusiastic is really thinking about this bigger picture. How does everything fit together? How are we going to test whether we can predict you know, when some machine is going to have its peak consumption during the day? How are we going to test that? How are we going to set up an experiment? How are we going to set up a pilot with some real life customers to, to test if it works? How are we going to, and how that, does it fit together with all the other stuff that we're doing? So this kind of really big puzzle that you're trying to make. Yeah, well, I'd say I'm probably thinking about it at night, but I'm also waking up with it. <laughs> nice. But then is it is it kind of like when the, when the solution appears that like a light bulb moment that you see, but is it for yourself or is it when you see it in your customer's face that they said, holy smoke, I had no idea that, you know, my 1 million electricity bill all these years, I could have been saving maybe 5% and, you know, that that means I could have put my son to college at Oxford or something. I don't know. <laughs> So these are some really gratifying stories. We had one recently where, you know, we advised 100,000 euros in savings just in one go, like in one kind of conversation with a customer. And it was a huge impact on their energy bill. And it's usually consultants who have these conversations with customers because, you know, as much as I'd like to be a bridge between, you know, experts and, you know, our customers, uh, consultants are a little bit better versed in, in, in how to speak to customers. Uh, but I, I do really enjoy kind of sitting in and hearing what they're, what they're talking about um, but you know knowing that you can contribute to some of these things that are very tangible the customer is really happy with that uh, that's of course very rewarding and I should say also like right now our team is still relatively small uh, we're hiring very extensively but you know one of the big things that I've really enjoyed at least you know at my last company where you know I was also working with the team is to really see people develop and to really put their kind of expertise and passion into their work and to really see a team come together. So I'm very much looking forward to kind of build that atmosphere here as well. Yeah. Fantastic. So that, that kind of leads me to what is next on your thing that you'd like to learn? So building teams, I think you've done it before and you're passionate about it, but um, outside of that, what, what, are, what are some of the things that you're looking into learning next? Yeah. So I think one of the Kind of uh, bigger challenges in, in in any kind of IT field, if you're in a specialization, is how do you at some point, without having that detailed background that you have coming from your specialization, how can you draw on that, but also have something meaningful to say about other stuff, which you maybe you know you haven't you know stood in the mud up to your ankles to learn. You have to kind of either pick it up along the way, try and see if you can catch up with other right. people, but also ex accept that you're never going to fully get there. So this space where you have to then at some point really rely on other people's expertise, that's something you know, I've, I've experienced, but that's definitely going to be more. And that's also very exciting also to be, to be doing, to really know how to rely on other people's experts. So Dennis, this has been really inspiring and I really like it. So how can people reach out to you? What would be the right way for people to reach out to you? Yeah, so if anybody would like to discuss any of these interesting challenges or would like to you know, work with us at CenterFact, they can just email me. So just put my email there in the description or however you would do that usually. And yeah, we are always hiring, specifically data engineers. So if you're a data engineer and you're interested about these, uh, some of the more technical challenges that we discussed, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. 
And with that, this is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers, or even how to make this podcast better. Just send us an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.